Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today is kind of a big deal. Miroslav Wolf is kind of a giant in the world of Protestant theology. Uh, he teaches at Yale. He runs the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He's been an advisor to the White House on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. He has co-taught a class with former British Prime Minister Tony Blair at Yale. He's been on CNN, NPR, Al Jazeera. And his book, Exclusion and Embrace, in 1996, was named by Christianity Today as one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century. He does not do a lot of podcasts. Thank you to my friend Evan Rosa, who works with him at Yale, for asking Miroslav to do this show. I'm very happy he's here. We are talking this week about flourishing. Flourishing is a little bit of a slippery concept. People have different definitions, uh, but one thing that theologians like Miroslav and aspiring psychologists like myself can agree on is that human flourishing is very important and it is a big part of God's will for our lives. So we talk about how theology gives us a blueprint for that flourishing. We talk about psychology primarily as a means toward the end that uh, a, a good theology uh, will give us sort of the roadmap. Um, we talk about habits, um, 
anybody. Anyway, a bunch of stuff. It's a great conversation. Uh, I'm very excited for you guys to hear it. And there's not much else to say, except that if you don't know who Miroslav is, don't worry about it. If you were raised evangelical like I was, we didn't get uh, exposed to stuff like his. That's not really the, the water we were swimming in. It was all John Eldridge, C.S. Lewis, and John Piper. And, you know, that's okay. We come from where we come from. But now we're here today, and we get to listen to Miroslav, and frankly, it's a step up. So, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go. Miroslav, you told me to call you that, otherwise I would not, I would not uh, deign, or I would not, uh, what's the word, <laughs> presume to call you Miroslav. I would have called you Dr. Wolf. This is an interesting situation for me because I'm so new, uh, temporally I'm new to more mainline, more liberal uh, type of, of, a, of a church Christian world. And as soon as I even put one foot into that world, your name is one of the first names that always pops up. But I was raised evangelical, and there was so was, a, so was I. Okay, okay, and, and I I still don't reject the title. I don't call myself evangelical, but yeah. I do not reject the designation. Well, you you either have a larger theological imagination, or you're a kinder person than I am for for that uh, decision, but. I'm embarrassed that I haven't really read you because uh, had I been raised Methodist, for instance, I'm sure I would be multiple books into your canon by now. Uh, but I'm late to the game, man. However, never, I never late. <laughs> it's never too late. It's never no. too late. But uh, your producer, uh, my friend Evan, introduced us and he sent me this really helpful introduction to your work by a couple of your colleagues. So I'm going to be pulling my questions from that. But I just want to admit my sort of lack of experience here. So feel free to you know update me or correct me at any moment. And I'd like to start, if we can, with this image you have or this, this phrase you have, human beings are interested beings. What do you mean when you say that we are interested? Yeah, I don't mean that we are interesting. Uh, occasionally, right. we are interesting uh, as as well. And uh, maybe if we are sufficiently curious, we'd find that every single person, even the most the dullest one, is an interesting human uh, human being. But we are interested in the sense that we pursue a particular kinds of interest. Obviously, we have interest in survival. We have interest in thriving. We have other forms of interest as well. And this idea that we are not just there, but that we are projecting ourselves into something, uh, into being somebody, into being perceived as being uh, somebody, into... Uh, living a certain kind of uh, life, that's what I mean by interested uh, beings. And we have to take these interests uh, into consideration when we think about uh, who human beings uh, are. Obviously, interests can be shaped, uh, and depending on our characters, our kinds of our interests that we have will also change. But So it's important to attend to the character of our interests so as to be rightly interested human beings. Before we get into that sort of rightly interested and, and shaping, shaping those interests, 
Would you be comfortable saying that sort of the biological underpinning that allows us to sort of be these kind of interested beings is the development of our, our cognitive faculties, right? So we can, we can project into the future. We can tell stories about the past. We're aware of our own death, our own end, other people's death in a way that most other animals are not. And, and to the extent that some get close, they don't get quite as, they're not as interested uh, yeah. in, in that way as in that sense as we are. That's right. And a different way to express what you were just describing is to say that we are capable of, a tr of transcending ourselves right. at any given point of time, that we are able to look at back at ourselves and looking back at ourselves, evaluate uh, ourselves. And that's why we can project ourselves into the future to be different than we are as we perceive ourselves. That's why we can compare ourselves with the past and so forth, right? So that's right. That's a uh, foundation of this. This is this uh, self-transcendence of human uh, beings, this cognitive ability accompanied by ability to will. And I'm training to be a psychologist right now, and, and we talk about stuff like this in terms of the clinical setting, right? Like if, if we didn't have something like this, then therapy would be pointless. But I can sit as a client with my therapist, and I can imagine myself not dealing with the problem I'm dealing with right now. I can imagine myself processing this un unfortunate interaction with my parent better, you know, or my spouse or, or whatever. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, it, it's, it's an incredibly foundational thing. It's maybe the thing that makes us human as opposed to another species. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it belongs to the very core of our, uh, our humanity. Um, uh, how exactly to draw lines between species uh, is a very much contested issue. But I think that's a feature of humanity that is absolutely fundamental uh, to us. By the way, that also opens us up. The idea of self-transcendence opens us up to transcendence, to the transcendent one. And that's connected also with our capacity for uh, faith, capacity for religion. Uh, all of these things belong together. Yeah. So in terms of these questions that we might ask, or um, I guess we, we haven't only been talking in terms of abstract questions, but in terms of maybe the the deepest, the oldest, the most interconnected ways that we might imagine ourselves, right? The, the ways that we might transcend ourselves. The, the deepest of those ways are basically questions about ultimate reality, about God, right? Yeah, uh, I, I think that uh, fundamental to us as human beings is this search beyond uh, who we are and what we are. And that search, uh, I think, uh, corresponds to the claim that human beings uh, are creatures uh, of God. And as creatures are always already, whether we know that or not, whether we affirm that or not, are always already set in a relationship uh, to God. And relationship to God is fundamental to who we are as human beings. I've been kicking around this phrase that I, I've heard many places, and I don't remember where I've heard it, but I, I keep finding myself thinking of it, people saying that if God didn't exist, human beings would have invented him. And I, I, tend, I take that to be a, a kind of a skeptical uh, claim. It's, it's a way for non-theistic people to make sense of the fact that people are so religious. 
But it strikes me that what we're talking about here is another way of interpreting a phrase like that. If, for instance, our cognitive abilities, et cetera, et cetera, allow us to do this move where we're looking into the future, we're projecting, we're, we're imagining ourselves interconnected to, uh, you know, innumerable other places, people, events, there's something kind of beautiful and cool about the fact that in that sense, we could sort of invent God in, in terms of, I don't mean, uh, the Judeo-Christian God or like God in all God's specificity that theology gives us. But the idea of like, Hey, I think actually I'm a part of something way bigger. And where did these stars come from? And where, what, what was the first tree that made these other trees that give us these nuts that we're living off of? You know I mean? I'm, I'm just kind of riffing here, but there's something actually very cool about that, that if you were God and wanted creatures to be in some sort of relationship with you, then you might say, yeah, you would you would want to create creatures that would invent you if you didn't exist, that have that natural capacity, that natural proclivity for thinking about the ultimate. Yeah, and there's a whole line in, of Christian thinking that uh, kind of draws a connection between our natural proclivities towards self-transcendence to our faith in God. Indeed, some uh, would argue that one can construct a proof uh, or at least a suggestion of or plausibility, plausible uh, account of the existence of God on the basis of something uh, of, uh, of that sort. My own sense is that we never quite get to the infinity, that we never quite get uh, to God on that uh, on that road. So I'm a more of a God's self-revelation kind of uh, theologian under assumption that God is always already, even when we don't affirm that, in relationship uh, to us and, and with us. Yeah, uh, I think we'll probably get to that. So we'll put a pin in that revelation. There's interesting ways that I have found to think about that. I tend to think it's like that's just the Bible in kind of a Karl Barth sense of a really high view of the special revelation of Scripture. But um, I have a if we can get to it, I want to ask you about panentheism and, and other other sort of like God is constantly self-revealing uh, models mm-hmm. of that. But let's stick with uh, these questions. So one thing that's interesting is that in, in my understanding of your work. You know, you're you're talking about these these questions about God. They matter so deeply to us. They are really the most basic of our deep questions. But it also seems on the surface like these questions don't matter at all to a bunch of people, right? People who identify as atheist or agnostic, um, certainly people who have been wounded in religious settings. So how do you account for the divergence of the sort of self-identified importance of these questions across a population? Well, each of us has our own history with God uh, or with God question. Each of us has uh, our own uh, version of the lack of history with that uh, question. Each of us is an atheist, if we are atheist, uh, in a kind of biographically specific way. So there's there's a story that a friend of mine uh, tells 
about troubles in in Ireland, and you, you know the, the, there is a the, the, the lines were very sharp, right? And so it was very important to identify uh, who, uh, who who is who, Protestant or, or or Catholic. And so this guy crossing the line, and he, he said, uh, "Are you a Protestant or you're a Catholic?" And he said, "I'm an uh, I'm an atheist." And the question back was, are you a Catholic atheist or are you a Protestant atheist? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, because there's difference in, in these two type of atheism. And it's even narrower than just uh, um, atheists with, with, with regard to the Protestant uh, cultural incarnation of, uh, of Christian, uh, Christian faith at a particular, particular place. So, uh, yeah, each of us has our own uh, history uh, with God. And part of the reason, I think, that, that we have also so many people who, especially in recent years, have become disaffected uh, and who not just disaffected, but who somehow God doesn't show up in their horizon. Uh, I think what makes this possible, uh, it's important to note that, that at the very heart of the faith in God is what makes this possible. And that's the certain kind of, you can maybe put it this way, certain kind of anonymity of God. And that anonymity of God is tied to the idea that God is not part of the furniture of this world, that you can't travel to a place and say, ah, there, there he is, there he sits, or there she sits, or whatever you want, uh, whatever, whatever pronoun you want to use, uh, personal pronoun you want to use of God. So this kind of sense that God is not part of the world is fundamental to the possibility of atheism, but is a fundamental to the kind of character truly that God is. The other discussion, obviously, is whether faith in God is um, is harmful or not to us, and that partly depends on what harm uh, is and what it means to be a human being. And a lot of uh, atheism is the protest atheism. A lot of atheism is atheism in the in, a, in, in name of certain kind of freedom. And so the debates of who we as human beings are, how we project ourselves, what we deem valuable, and who God is are, are closely in, intertwined. And that's why I think that posing the question of God is posing a question of the nature of the world and who we are as human beings. The kind of God you've got is the kind of person you at least want to be or and the kind of person you want to be there's going to be a correlation to the kind of God you're willing to accept. Uh, so many threads to possibly pick up in there. I have recently been thinking of the question of theism or atheism as really reducible to the question of whether or not the universe has meaning. Mm-hmm. And that that's, that's or, or, or like as far as I can tell, the universe has meaning or as far as I can tell, the universe does not have inherent meaning other than whatever I happen to be able to create for it while I'm alive. But the thread I want to pick up more is this idea of this kind of hiddenness, this uh, ambiguity about God as being sort of fundamental to apparently God's uh, nature, um, such that these conversations can happen. You know, it it would have been mind boggling to the 14 year old evangelical version of me to hear me say something like, uh, maybe it's better in the long run, that God is not sort of obviously one way such that everyone who doesn't accept that version of God is clearly evil, blinded by their sin, you know, yada, 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 that actually uh, existence and relationship with God is perhaps 
far more valuable, robust. Uh, the universe is a much better place for the fact that it isn't so clear because then it forces a certain kind of discernment on us. It forces maybe even an iron sharpening iron uh, between people committed to God and, and atheism uh, or people committed to atheism, as you said, especially when it's this kind of protest atheism that's calling out legitimate harm, legitimate evil in religious communities, overreach, etc., lack of humility. And I just I could never have said that as a teenager. But I, I'm I think that's pretty plausible, actually. Yeah, and I I don't think that that's at odds with at all with uh, the great uh, Christian tradition, and I don't think also at odds with some of the best of evangelical uh, thinking. Um, I I think we have we have become too narrow in our uh, in our thinking. We uh, and and too lazy, I think, uh, in our thinking, in a sense that we have this uh, well ten year old faiths, right? So and, and we never outgrow this kind of faith, and we have also even philosophers sometimes uh, Christian philosophers who operate with this kind of faith, and it's this kind of faith that they they want to prove that it is uh, that, that 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 is correct that this kind of God actually exists, uh, and I mean th- th- there is a way in which we can say to a person, the kind of atheist, the kind of God in which you do not believe, I do not believe either, as uh, a theist, as a full-throated yeah. yeah. uh, theist. Um, I mean, I, I've had that experience in my own teaching. You know, you, I know you, you don't have... listen to this podcast, but I, I actually have a series that I do for the patrons, exclusive mm. episodes called I Don't Believe in That God. And right, I, get, right. I get on the horn with an atheist and we just, we talk and we figure out, and usually I don't believe in two-thirds of the things they don't believe in either. And, of course, there's some difference. And it's interesting right. to sort of, in any individual case, figure out what that difference is. Yeah. Um, but there's also usually more agreement than disagreement. Yeah, I would agree uh, with that. Yeah. But this is so interesting, this 10-year-old faith idea. I, I want to tell a story of a, a person that I have heard firsthand. Um, and uh, she tells the story of being, I think it was 14 and feeling like going on a mission trip and feeling like God confirmed in her, you've got it sorted. This is the faith that you need to defend for the rest of your life. And then apparently at 17, another experience of prayer that uh, she experienced as confirming that original one. Uh, and this person is, is a baby boomer, right? In, in, in late middle age and has said this in conversation, like my job is to hold firm to that understanding from when I was 14. Uh, and I have just found that to be so, so sad that I, I don't know what other word to use for it, a lack mm. of imagination or, or just, just even like a, a basic understanding of like human growth that is, is perhaps founded in God's love, God's loving relationship for us, that we would grow, that we would continue to see things fresh. Our minds would be continually renewed. I don't know how you can say that your mind is being renewed if you're sticking with the 14-year-old version. I don't know. I guess I'm curious what you, if you have any other color or angle on, on what you think is going on with a story like that. Well, I'm, I'm, less, um, I, I, I'm less bothered by 14- and 17-year-old uh, versions of the faith of the person. I'm more bothered about thinking that um, 
that's the only valid expression. And that's the expression that to which I have to absolutely uh, hold, depending what that person means, right? Right. Um, but my, my sense is that, that there's something appropriate, that there is a 10-year-old version of faith, something that 14-year-old yeah. version of faith. There's something appropriate that there is a version of faith that is suited to every human, beings, human being, that it's not a kind of elite faith. Uh, God can be reached and God reaches through us through the medium through which we which we have in which we make uh, available it doesn't it, i don't need to climb to certain kinds of heights of understanding in order to have this profoundly important relationship with God yes. so uh, if we then uh, uh, kind of this d- democracy of God <laughs> and, and, and this, this openness to, uh, to all human beings of every stripe, if we take that seriously, I think obverse is going to be that for us, we will also honor a very flimsy, broken, uh, sometimes uh, funny versions uh, of faith uh, and, and try to tease out the truth that is in those faiths, rather than uh, either from the perspective of somebody who's uh, been theologian, deride those uh, those faiths, uh, or be completely impatient uh, by these folks, and and at the same time, uh, open up the possibility that something much richer than is being expressed in the words uh, of that fourteen-year-old was at stake, and it's that what was at stake that needs to be given life in a different form. I could hardly agree with you more. The way this has been coming up recently for me in in interviews on this podcast and just conversations with friends, uh, something that's going around a lot is sort of thinking about prayer and thinking about intercessory prayer and does God do it and and does God break the laws of physics or not? And are we right to even ask for things? Shouldn't we just accept that God always wants what's best? And and, um, I understand those conversations and I, I have sort of philosophical, theological convictions about what I think probably God is doing or whatever. But I have felt a, a lot of internal pushback around those conversations to also really affirm the very human, uh, naturally religious or spiritual phenomenon of a person just crying out to God, you know, in, in the most plain, standard way, asking for a good harvest asking for the safety of one's children, um, whether or not it works, just being thinking like, I cannot imagine that God would not, would be displeased by that in any sense. Even if God's like, Hey, my hands are metaphysically tied, so to speak. (laughs) There's still something like creaturely about that, that I have not felt comfortable always with the way that it can be kind of, um, yeah, kind of sidelined or kind of poo pooed, from a from a higher perspective, yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, I completely agree with you. Um, uh, I, I think what I'm uh, hoping for myself and as well as for for others to grow into both praying and holding the goal that which I pray for with certain kind of lightness of touch. So that I'm open to the possibility that I don't know the best what is it that I'm asking for and whether what I'm asking for is to my best. In other words, I'm open for for alternative forms in which that prayer can be actually 
uh, answered. And, you know, Apostle Paul is very clear about this. We don't know what we pray for, what to pray for. Right, the and Spirit prays on our behalf. Th- uh, and th- that's tied with this idea of that there's a kind of pr- prayer is an expression of hope, right? This is what I hope for. This is what I, uh, what I ask. But there's a kind of darkness in the hope. We don't know exactly the object of our hopes. Uh, so, and, and, and it's a, um, the experience there for me is something similar as uh, what many people have had when they have fallen in love. And when they have found somebody to fall in love with, and often the experience is, ah, this is what I was waiting for. It's not that you had an exact image. To, yes. And then it, it was kind of matched. But, but rather, suddenly your own expectations have come into its own when you have seen the object of those expectations, which was incohate or maybe determinate for you, but you left open so that you can be surprised. That's, I think, uh, how we ought to think about uh, what comes as a result of prayer and what I cry to God for. That is really interesting. Yeah, of sort of like not knowing exactly, not really knowing what we're asking for. That that seems like axiomatic, like clearly yeah. true on any any account of any sort of personal type God who's interacting. Like, of course, God's going to know better than I know what I actually need. It also makes me realize that that we should not lump all people who pray for the same thing have the same object of prayerful intention together because they're going to be coming from different places. They they yeah. actually uh, have different assumptions. So you might have, for instance, uh, maybe the, the, the worst end of it, we might say, is the prosperity gospel mm. prayer, which expects a kind of a transactional nature between me and God and really kind of demands and feels entitled to that on the one hand. But then you might have someone else who is praying for the exact same thing, perhaps healing of cancer or something like that, and they just are crying out. And if God gave them something else, they would understand. But in this moment, they're happening to pray for the healing. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I, I, I fully agree uh, agree with that. And you can apply to a wide variety of situations. My sense is, uh, for instance, that even, and I'm, I think I'm going to have an episode uh, in our podcast for the life of the world on prayer, because uh, many people who are persons of faith in time like these, uh, they cry to God, both for uh, their personal internal peace as well as for uh, health uh, and protection of their loved ones, for the whole world, whatever, whatever it is. But even here, I think, in those regards, there, there is a kind of darkness uh, in terms of what we are asking, a, a kind of openness to surprise what I can learn about myself, about the world, uh, out of what, what is happening and how my prayer can be heard without it being completely fulfilled uh, as what I have imagined that it's going, to, uh, it's going to be. And that, I think, to me, is uh, simply an indication that we are on a journey with God. Uh, just like we are journey in our loves, uh, on a journey in our loves. If he frees a, a certain image of what we are to become, uh, whether that in personal or in religious dimensions, 
uh, we're going to be we're going to become fundamentalists, <laughs> fundamentalists of our personal convictions, so to speak, and then unable to grow, unable to experience true richness of life. Yeah, and as soon as we think we know what someone's intention is in praying the way that they pray, now we're judging and we're contradicting the Sermon on the Mount. You have this distinction you make, according to the introduction to your work written by your colleagues, that there are theologies that are worth developing, adopting, thinking through, and theologies that are not worth investing, basically are very limited resources of time and energy. So I think of this as a nice counterpoint. We've just spent a few minutes sort of um, lifting up the faith of of the common people, of, of anybody crying out to God and wanting to take that seriously. On the other hand, uh, in your work, there's a discernment between what kind, and maybe this is the distinction between 10-year-old theologies and, and adult theologies or something like that. What what makes the difference between the kind of thing worth a, a, worth a, theologi- a theologian's time uh, or worth a person who's going through deconstruction and trying to reconstruct their faith um, between a, a, an approach that's worth that effort and one that's not? So, so one of the things that uh, we've tried to emphasize, uh, and I think you're referring to the book for the life of the world, and mm-hmm. pot, our podcast builds on on that title of the yes. book, and we pick up the same kinds of uh, issues. Uh, I think that you're referring to the idea that theology or our critique that theology has become um, a kind of merely a descriptive uh, discipline in some ways, uh, meaning by that it's uh, tried to emulate, has tried to emulate sciences, which help us understand, describe the world, but which really cannot tell us what kind of life is truly worthy of our humanity. And the argument uh, is that uh, the central question that theology – I think central argument is also a central question that great religious traditions and great philosophies raise for us is that, that at the heart of this intellectual effort lies a kind of vision of who human beings are and what it would mean to live a life that is worthy of our humanity. And those theologies that forget – to attend to that question, to have that question at the heart, seems to me that um, they may be interesting exercises, um, but uh, that they aren't doing what really culturally needs to be done, and that they're not faithful to uh, kind of the nature of the theology itself. I cannot speak about God without I myself being implicated in that, in this implicatedness of myself in any speech about God. That's what I have to uh, uh, thematize. Behind this lies a, a very simple uh, advice that I received as a theologian, young theologian from my doctoral supervisor, Jürgen Moltmann. So when I got my doctorate, I asked him, uh, Jürgen, uh, what do I do now? Uh, what would you advise me? I mean, uh, how, does one, how does one do the work of a theologian? And so what he said me stay, stayed with me my entire life. And he said, you know, find the question that moves people and shed the light of the gospel on it. And I think that's quite right. And what moves us is who we are and how our world is configured and 
shedding our li- shedding the light of the gospel on on this is what theology is about. It's for the life of the world. It strikes me though that a lot of the kind of theologies that I think you and I would agree are not really worth pursuing and that a lot of these potentially very brilliant men and women are spending their careers defending uh, are in a sense about the question that drives a lot of people, but it's one that shouldn't drive them. And it is fear of going to hell. And that basically like I'm coming to, I'm coming to place that more and more at the center uh, as kind of the beating heart of, of a lot of the theology that I end up arguing against and that I'm trying to help, you know, facilitate people seeing another option. But if you think there is a big sorting that's going to go on, and especially if you think that could happen any day because Christ is returning or whatever, then the thing that drives you is not going to hell. I mean, if you believe in that kind of uh, situation, there's there's nothing sort of logically possibly more of a driver than that because you're being constantly reminded that this life is but a blip and then it's the next life that's eternal and you've got a binary shot at it. And so, you know what I'm saying? In that sense, it is what's driving them. And, and those theologians are responding to that drive, but it's the drive that we we would hope that God and through us would coax them away from if we don't believe that that's what God is really like. Uh, I, I, I fully agree with you. And in many ways, I'm a, a kind of, I hope uh, that hell is empty uh, kind of a theologian. And uh, I think it's the fullness of life that uh, Christ came to give uh, rather than uh, rescue from the, simply rescue from the pit of um, pit of hell. You know, sometimes though, um, not disagreeing actually with what what you're saying, but sometimes though, I think that at least in these kinds of theologies, there's kind of seriousness, seriousness about who we are as human beings. Oh, yeah. yeah. And seriousness about what we need to do in order to be who we truly are. They may be wrong about that, but I'm, I've come to think that, that this kind of flippancy about human beings, not taking seriously the question of uh, not about my simply interests, but by my, my, my humanity, the depth of who I am as a human being and what kind of life I should live. It seems to me that that's uh, that, that has fallen by the wayside in much of the kind of popular thinking about uh, about our lives. We're interested in the means to achieve certain kinds of uh, ends, and those ends end up being ends of uh, diminution of pain and increase of, of pleasure. And whole of life is oriented uh, around around this. I mean. Sure, it's uh, it's uh, it's not as bad as whole life being oriented around escaping hell, but it's a kind of vacuity. It's a kind of superficiality, a kind of lightness of being that, if you step back and think about it, it's it's deeply disappointing. At least to me, it is. I mean, if you have these incredible specimens of humanity that took their lives so incredibly seriously. That took their interior lives in in a sense that ah uh, the beauty of the interior life something that matters that matters more than the way I look on the outside I want that kind of a human being who cares about that which is fundamental rather than to care about superficial uh, 
kind of things, uh, a, a kind of flighty entertainment. And uh, yeah, it's an unbearable lightness of being is what Mil- Milan Kundera, uh, echoing Nietzsche, has called it. Yeah, which is a novel that uh, I can only recommend to the non-sexually faint of heart. <laughs> it's uh, I, I agree, but uh, but but it's the great, point, though. yeah. But the point partly partly is that that, that precisely shows the, the kind of the um, that this kind of life is vacuity at the heart right. of it. Right. Exactly. Right. That's his whole point. Um, well, this is a perfect lead-in to talking about flourishing. So you're talking about uh, you know a certain kind of person, um, at least these sort of hell-hounded, uh, worse theologies take the questions seriously. And I, I felt for a long time, like, give me an ardent believer in any religion, and I'm going to be more interested to talk to them than to someone who just isn't asking these questions. And some of that, I think, might just be my personality, my own interests, but some of it is also kind of what you're getting at, this this drive. I do understand, though, that some people... Uh, actually, a lot of people and, and in, an increasing number of people in my own circles as I do this kind of work have been um, injured by people whose drive, you know, toward that, which we are praising, made them sort of zealots and blinded them to the insane power that they wield as spiritual authorities, for instance. So how do you think about how to balance that of like, you know, Lifting up the, the the fact that there's care there and that there is that they're valuing it, while also calling people with tremendous power to account to take that power more seriously or or be more careful and and not be led by their own neuroses or their own fear of God in the in a negative sense of fear, uh, not awe and respect, or by their own search for power or by their own right. search for wealth or whatever that might uh, that might be uh, I, I think that is a crucial question and it's a crucial question to uh, discern and protect uh, the beauty of the faith from uh, some of its most ardent advocates that is the kind of religion critical task of the religion itself which is to say that's the role of the prophets in the biblical uh, tradition. That's what they do, right? Uh, right. Um, emptiness of the prayer uh, that stabilizes a cult, that stabilizes uh, uh, b- both the relationship of exploitation or relationship of uh, political uh, power. That has to be called into uh, question. Jesus' own critique, both of uh, religion and of economic exploitation and so forth. So, so the kind of misuse of religion is there, and that's why we need critics of uh, of religion. And the, the, the critics of religion which uh, critique it from within, from the deepest resources of the faith uh, itself, are to me the most interesting ones. Let's move on to flourishing here. The idea of this is the, this is the life of the world, right? These are the questions that people are asking. It might be true. Uh, it's it's certainly true that people raised in more fundamentalist or fundamentalist adjacent corners of society are asking the question, how do I not go to hell? But actually, most Americans, for instance, are not asking that question. That's not the main thing that they're asking. They're probably asking something more like, what? how should my life look? 
What would be a good life if they have children? Like, what should I want for my children? You know, like people are asking ethical questions about uh, their society and and, and political questions and all of that. So when you talk about flourishing, can you can you frame it in light of this this uh, the Moltmann thing you said, which is find the question people are asking and shed gospel light on it? How does that relate to the idea of flourishing or living the good life? Well, I I, I think that's um, one of the big questions about the nature of faith. Uh, is this uh, simply uh, a means to escape into another world, or is it a way of living uh, in this world concretely? And it would seem to me not difficult to show that Christian faith— uh, whether that's Jesus or whether that's Paul uh, or other representatives, uh, early representatives of Christian faith, uh, are about living the true life in this life. How does one live the true life under the conditions of the false life in which we find ourselves uh, while hoping uh, in the fullness of life in the future? So that, to me, is a fundamental question. You know, I would be really interested, and I haven't seen statistics, maybe you know them. I'd be interested to know how many actually, even of fundamentalist uh, groups, truly organize their lives around uh, escape from the fires of hell. And how many, in fact, are looking to faith for some kind of orientation uh, in life. And my bet would be that the great majority, even in those traditions, are about giving structure, giving meaning, giving purpose uh, to, to their lives. And for me, if I think, what does flourishing life look like? What does flourishing life look like under the conditions in which we live right now? Uh, it's the life of Christ. It is the life which is living out the divine goodness, God's goodness, under the condition of its opposition, internal opposition, but also external opposition. And hence also comes the suffering, suffering uh, of the persecuted Christ and suffering of Christ who doesn't sleep but prays, uh, who doesn't sleep but uh, walks and helps uh, people who are in need. So that suffering can have both the source in opposition, but also source in the good that needs to be given under the conditions of the difficulty of life and fragility and sinfulness of life in which we live. I think flourishing life is a life in the footsteps of Christ. So I have it to come back to that in a bit once we've sort of more established uh, the bona fides of, of, of this flourishing approach and for using theology in general instead of something like psychology uh, to talk about how specifically Jesus or even a Trinitarian view of God can ground this idea of flourishing. So we're going to come back to that. I don't have like uh, Pew Research numbers for the thing you're asking about uh, how many people are really here to avoid hell or, or whatever. But I do have a little bit of information. I just aired an episode um, a week or two ago with a couple sociologists who developed a hell anxiety scale. Yeah. And they did a literature review as well as part of that. And so they're really up on kind of the the research literature on fear of hell and religious scrupulosity and anxiety and all this stuff. And they brought up some really interesting points about that. A couple that are salient here is that actually there is a, a kind of a psychic limit to our ability to per- conceive of hell. And and uh, Joseph, one of the researchers, he's like, my gut is that it's just kind of like this ultimate bad thing 
that all it really needs to do is like be brought up in the periphery most of the time and it does its work and you don't really need to spend a lot more time on it than that. Then you get on with the rest of your day. And one other thing they said is that, you know, uh, the anxiety of hell that they found, it's not pathological. It's not just people with anxiety disorders. It is a rational response to a terrifying possibility, but it's bounded rationality. It is rationality within uh, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you end up getting is people who will answer a, a question. Yes, I believe many people are going to hell. But number one, they will basically never believe that they're going to hell. So baked into being a member of a church like that is the knowledge that you're not going, at least if you're an adult, uh, you know, kids who are kind of still processing stuff. And that's really the scariest part for me is adolescents and children. Sure. Uh, and then the other thing is that nobody really lives as if all their non-Christian neighbors are going to hell. Uh, maybe the occasional person with the megaphone outside the baseball game. But actually, we're not – if we really believe that, we would quit our jobs and we would go – You know, but no one does that. I mean 0.1% of people do that or something. And those people, you probably could find something in the DSM that would apply to them, right? So there, I think you're right. I think you're on to something that basically even those of us who are in traditions that explicitly say what we're doing is hell avoidance, it's not what we're actually doing. We're just trying to live we, – we want – for instance – you know, uptight and worried baby boomer parents whose kids are going through faith deconstruction and they're worried about it. They're not just trying to save them from hell. They want a relationship with their kids. They want the good life as they envision it for their kids. They they train them up in the way they should go and they should stick around and our family should be close and we should have good holidays, not tense holidays, you know, fill it out. I, my grandkids, I should be able to teach my grandkids what I taught my kids, not have them tell me I can't tell them that anymore. You know what I mean? It, it really, it does come down to, I've been talking for a long time, I apologize, but I think it does come back to flourishing in that sense. Yeah, I think I fully agree with you. And uh, I want to just make a comment about one thing that you that you mentioned. And, uh, it, and maybe you didn't mean it that way, or your interlocutors did not mean it quite uh, th- that way. But there was kind of anxiety uh, over hell uh, tied with kind of scrupulosity uh, to scrupulosity. And th- there, there is a kind of scrupulosity that's tied to the uh, to the fear of of hell, but uh, you know, I, I'll I'll be a, an advocate for scrupulosity, scrup- right kind of scrupulosity about uh, about my life, rather than f- being flippant about how I live my life, and we are frittering away the 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 one precious good. And if you ask people, so so if this was your last day, I mean, I had a conversation with the guy and sitting at the bar, drinking a glass of wine. You know, I don't know what what happened uh, in the world. Oh, if it was my last day, you know, um, and then w- what comes out? You know, I'm going to have sex. I'm going to have a great uh, great meal or, or something like. That. And you think, wow, nothing deeper than that. And and that's kind of the, the highest value. Uh, that one can one can experience because one hasn't 
developed a fine-tuned mechanism of self-discernment and uh, and a kind of valid self-validation from the greatness of what one does, what one aspires to be, so that last act isn't some uh, help to some old lady crossing the crosswalk. It's better than a great meal. I mean – that's what yeah. I, that's what I that's what I miss so much in contemporary uh, much of contemporary culture. I think you're using scrupulosity in a general sense, and they're using it in a clinical sense. Like, yeah. for instance, I interviewed a bunch of people about the end times and their mental health, and uh, a story that one uh, gentleman told me was that when he was a kid, if he would start to think of the number six six six, he had to say in his head seven 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 before he finished thinking 666 or else he would, you know, it's that kind right, of thing. Right, it, it's right. clinical, right? It's sure, sure. It, it's uh, connected to OCD basically in the literature. So I want to, I want to talk about psychology versus theology in a sense here, because I want to, I want to situate your view in, in my own story, which listeners are, are fairly familiar with. So I basically was a, uh, an amateur student of theology for 15 years since I was old enough to do it. And then in the last few I've been finding myself gravitating more and more towards psychology. I read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind around the time of the election, and it just gave me so much better explanations for what I was seeing than mo most of my theological reading had done. And that word explanations, I was thinking about this before talking to you. I think that's the key. So w w how I want to say it is that the reason I've gravitated towards psychology is that it explains my ex the language of psychology explains my experience of the world better than the language of theology does on aggregate. Now, maybe if I found the right theologian, uh, that would be the case, but it, we don't have the peer review. It's not like we're trying to, you know, there's, there's a, not the same epistemological infrastructure for theology that there is for psychology. And so Jonathan Haidt is standing on the shoulders of many great psychologists before him and and, you know, doing his thing. But even though there might be better explanations there, I don't think that my overall intentions have changed from the ones that were motivated by my Christian faith, by my theology, right? Which is to basically increase people's ability to live in harmony and love with God and with their neighbor, right? So that's the same. It's more like I've found for me a better set of tools uh, by which to accomplish that. Um, and, and a better set of tools by which to understand, frankly, what's going on uh, when when, you know, 70 percent of the people I grew up with and went to church with are supporting Trump or something like like, how do I how do I explain that? Is it theology? Are they have they abandoned their first love or something like that? Or is it like they're tribal? It's like tribe psychology. Uh, I think it's tribe psychology. That seems better. So. I understand you to say that theology is where we get our vision of the good life. And I think that's still true for me, but it's interesting that I've found maybe a different set of tools. That's a wide open prompt for you to just any thoughts you have on that. Well, I, 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 do, I think that uh, that any uh, account of a flourishing life or of the good life, true life, say name it whatever way you want, although each of these designations has its own intellectual and cultural uh, tradition. But each of them will have uh, both a vision and a way. That is to say, it's going to have a goal. What is it that we are to become? 
and how do we how do we get there? Um, and one is more normative than the other. And when it comes to the way, I think that wide variety of disciplines uh, can be of great help in terms of how do we actually get from point A to point uh, point B. And uh, I think most productive conversations with psychology are those that concern, uh, and sociology from my perspective, are those that concern uh, kind of explanations of behavior and kind of analysis of the greater likelihood of outcomes if one pursues certain kind of uh, practices or certain yeah. kinds of uh, behaviors. I fully, fully agree with that. Um, but explanations are not enough. Explanations presuppose, for, at least for human uh, beings, we are interested. We have goals, goal-oriented human uh, human beings, and we don't have just interests that are simply there. We project ourselves in something that is valuable uh, to us, and that requires a normative vision. And no science is, uh, science can give you that uh, normative vision, and that's why my my summary kind of critique of the predominant uh, way in which we. Think think in modern universities is that we have become uh, absolute expert in experts in means, but we have become amateurs in ends. What kind of ends should we be pursuing? And just to to add uh, maybe a little footnote to to what yeah. you said. So one way to put it is simply: so it's clear, love God, love neighbors, and uh, and have a, a have have harmony. But once you start parsing this out, what love exactly? means, what harmony exactly means, how does one understand a set of relationships that one has with others, suddenly you realize that the the kind of end that you have in view will shape the modes of interacting. And so the theology or shapes the the way in which you think that the reactions should uh, should go on, so that this normativity is not uh, four abstract uh, uh, ideas, uh, but they go into the fine fabric of of our lives. For instance, I mean, I'm working right now together with Ryan McAnally Lins. We are go- we're working on a on a vision of home. Now, in some ways, we can do that descriptively. Or we can do it normatively. Once you start doing it normatively, suddenly you have to ask host of questions to which psychology has no answers, host of questions to which sociology has no answers, and so forth, but that we nonetheless always already answer to ourselves to be able to live uh, lives uh, at home. Yeah, we have implicit norms, implicit values. We just haven't looked at them uh, critically. That's right. So, and that's where theology, I think, comes in. That's where great philosophies come in. That's where other religions come come in. And there's kind of debate then among them on issues, significant issues. Let's say psychology were left to itself, for instance. You could do this with any other subdiscipline or whatever. But let's say psychology were left to itself to not only establish the means but also the ends. How how would you see that uh, tragedy sort of playing out in more specific terms? Uh, how would it do it to, uh, if it if it stayed true to itself as an explanatory science? I see. So it would have to basically jump the bounds of what it does right. and become uh, theology or become something like that. Some some kind of some kind kind of account of life 
will have to be presupposed. And that might generally be something like uh, pop utilitarianism, for instance, diminish suffering, increase pleasure. Okay, so that's how human beings operate. That's how human beings should operate, because the only way to know what human beings should do is what human beings, in fact, do. And then we'll try to figure out how best to increase our pleasure and decrease our, uh, our, our suffering, right? And how to do that, not just as individuals, but to do that in communities uh, of small and, and large. Uh, but some such vision will be at the core of it. And that vision is contested, radically contested. Right. Um, I'm reminded of something that Robert Bella said. I think it was in a podcast interview, so I don't know what book it was from before he died. And somebody was sort of lodging the old standard critique of the main line is diminishing. You know, evangelicals are still growing or whatever. And he said, you know, one way we might think about this is that Paul Tillich, Niebuhr, these mainline theologians of the of the middle 20th century, they succeeded. They basically convinced Western society of their goals, of their aims. And now we have a kind of secular version of that. It doesn't have the God language on it, but it's pretty identical. And that makes me think of basically the school of thought that is currently ascendant in my graduate program, which is a, by the way, just middle of the road, APA accredited, like kind of just slap it right down in the middle of the continuum of, of psychology programs. There's a big Carl Rogers sort of humanistic psychology, flourishing, uh, self-actualization. Uh, you know, Rogers' idea is that your client, a human being, has a natural tendency to want to move up the Maslow pyramid. We don't want to stop with just food and shelter and sex. We want actually connection. We want meaningful work. And what the therapist tries to do is help them get rid of roadblocks, get rid of impediments. Now, Rogers is very clear. He, he's very clear about sort of his his structure there. This is his anthropology. This is what a human being will do. If you get if you get rid of impediments, they will move toward flourishing toward the good life. I would say toward God. I would put that language in there as a theist. So what do you think about that? I mean, that seems to me to be a, a, a kind of a, a, a psychologist doing a, a type of a theology without the God language. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a type of it, it's a type of normative normative discourse hidden behind the descriptive uh, discourse. This is what human beings do. Therefore, that's what human beings should be uh, should be doing it. And then you can challenge that on factual grounds, or you can challenge that also on normative grounds. Uh, back to the question of. Um, a kind of Maslow's hierarchy. Of course, normatively, one can also ask whether that hierarchy is uh, is acceptable, true. Uh, sure. You can factually um, contest that question, but even if factually were true, is it universally true? Even if it were universally true, is this what human beings ought to do? What we de facto desire is not necessarily what we ought to, ought to do. Uh, and I think that's how the discussion would have to move rather than simply on the assumption Okay, that's what we all do. Let's make it possible for us to do what we do. Yeah, and I, I've been most interested in sort of like taking what seems true about the Rogers view fr from what I can tell, you know, my first year of my doctorate or whatever, but and 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 putting that into Christian language and and playing it against Christian theology. Um, we are getting toward the end of our time. I want to make sure we have enough time to hear 
your sort of vision of a a flourishing definition that is based in Jesus and in Christian theology. So let's talk about that a little bit. You 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 briefly hit on it earlier that um, for you, flourishing is the life of Christ, which includes suffering. It includes self-giving love. Um, just just say more about that. Uh, right. I mean, we can approach it from various uh, various angles. Uh, I think Christ is will be whatever angle one approaches it will be for me at the center. But uh, we have uh, done in this book that you have mentioned uh, for the life of the world and in the podcast as well, that's what uh, animates it. We have articulated the vision of flourishing life based on uh, what Apostle Paul says about the nature of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Kingdom of God is not about food and drink or not only or not primarily about food and drink. Kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace and it's about uh, joy. And these three, righteousness, peace, and joy, they take up three very important dimensions, spheres, if you want, maybe better dimensions of our lives. And one is our agency, the other is our circumstances, and the third is our emotions. And uh, I believe that all three of these are always implicated when we think about uh, flourishing life. And that, then it becomes uh, the question, what do we mean by right kind of living? What do we mean by the right set of circumstances in which we live, which is shalom, and what do we mean by right kinds of, uh, kinds of emotions? And teasing that out is teasing out a Christian vision of the good life, of the flourishing life. Uh, two of those three, agency and emotions, and also just the language of flourishing in general, really makes me think back to Aristotle, to sort of the Greek philosophical schools, including Stoicism, and, and really to a, a kind of an approach to the good life that is almost extinct today. You, you find it at monasteries here and there, uh, and occasionally religious orders like the little brothers and little sisters of Jesus. But we are, we tend to be far more into abstract discourse and then following just kind of whatever our friends do, as opposed mm -hmm. to getting into like habits, practices, um, formative ones, right? Ones that we we enter into like boot camp designed to change us, right? So we use our agency, for instance, to enter in those practices and those practices change our emotions. They, they shape our emotions, you know, in Ignatian spirituality, you're using your, uh, you're constantly using your ability to imagine things to sort of shape your loves and your desires and shape your imagination towards greater and greater and more Christ-like ends. How do you think this plays in? I mean, this is a bit more of the, of the means than it is, uh, the ends, but it, you're, by, by using this language of virtue and, and good life, I mean, it's so Aristotelian that it, it necessarily asks this question of these kinds of means that have become so out of fashion in our current day. Yeah, and we can ask that question of means not necessarily following our Aristotelian uh, line of, uh, of, of thinking there, but nonetheless ask the question, I think you're you're exactly right. We need to ask how it is that we should uh, we can achieve that, um, and that's where the idea of the way comes in for me. It's it's a journey into that. What that journey entails will be partly shaped uh, shaped by the end that we need to we need to achieve. I would also make sure that I I, I add 
the the kind of circumstances side of things. I've come not to think that kind of uh, uh, split that sometimes one sees in the larger uh, debate between oh, let's make sure that 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 conditions for well-being are are satisfied, and that's all we can do, or let's make sure that no matter what circumstances are, we can uh, live a, a life of serenity and 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 of peacefulness. Um, which is the Stoic approach. Which is right. the Stoic uh, approach. And I would say uh, both and. And how one thinks that these two together, how one thinks righteousness and peace together, uh, and how emotions fit into it is part and parcel of a Christian account uh, of flourishing life. You know, it's interesting, and I'll, I'll try and be quick here, but I just saw a TED Talk last night in one of my classes about uh, new research on stress and how they there was this study that showed that people with high levels of stress who did a bunch of work in their community, who spent mm-hmm. a lot of time volunteering, that stress had no effect on their likeliness to die in the preceding five years after mm-hmm. the initial study. As opposed to people who didn't do that work, it, it was like a 40% or 30% higher likelihood of death in that five-year period. And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Like there, there is a protective, there's actually ends up being a protective uh, value to engaging with one's world in a selfless way. And that's straight out of the Christian playbook. I mean, that's the right. imitation of Christ in its purest form. Yeah. Or to add, uh, emphasize similar thing from the other uh, other end, to think that somehow I can flourish without... Uh, yes. world around me flourishing yes. is to think of oneself as an isolated, isolated individual precisely to go against the Christian vision where the vision is that of the kingdom of God or vision is that of the new, new creation and within that new creation, new creation that each individual is. So connection between the whole and the self is very fundamental to the Christian faith. Thank you so much, Miroslav, for your time. Uh, I've now got five hours more of questions to ask you as follow-ups, but we'll have to save that. Uh, and your the new podcast is for the life of the world. People should check that out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Thank you again. Excellent. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you to Evan for hooking up this conversation. To Scott Kanjami for editing my conversation with Miroslav. There's a link to his show. You know, there's a Patreon. I didn't talk about it today. Just just went without interruption with Miroslav here. Uh, but you can support the show. It's five bucks a month. You get exclusive episodes and access to the Facebook group. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. You know the drill. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>